Good afternoon and welcome to Brown Bag Green Book. I'm Eleanor Williams, president of the Friends of the Library. I would like to introduce to you our speaker, Stephen Smith, who is the executive director of Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. Mr. Smith, we're happy to have you. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is a great series, and I uh, really appreciate Emily's leadership in pulling together. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I think uh, really having a thoughtful conversation about the environment on an ongoing basis is, is a very important thing to do. Let me give uh, a little bit of context, uh, myself and, and our organization, and how it relates to the book. And Emily was very uh, perceptive to actually give, give me a chance to, to talk about this book, because uh, as I finally got, got around to reading it, uh, it's just, it was like deja vu because we were right in the middle of a lot of this stuff. But again, my name is Stephen Smith. I'm the executive director of the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. I've uh, been here in Knoxville for over 20 years. I graduated from the uh, University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine here at UT. That's what brought me to Knoxville. Grew up in the southeast. I lived in Florida and, and Middle Tennessee for a while. Did my undergraduate work over in, in Kentucky and then came here uh, to Knoxville to go to vet school. I practiced for seven years uh, up in Newport, but I always had this sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde existence because even during uh, my time as being a vet, I was very active in a number of uh, environmental uh, activities here in East Tennessee. Um, I'm a co-founder of the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance. We had a foundation, the Foundation for Global Sustainability, which has spun off a number of uh, very successful projects uh, over the years, including Tennessee Clean Water Network and, and other things. So uh, we've been very active over the years in, um, in working on environmental issues. But in 1993, I became the executive director of then an organization called the Tennessee Valley Energy Coalition. It turned into the Tennessee Valley Energy Reform Coalition, and then in 1999, we, we changed the name to the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. We were originally focused on primarily the, uh, the TVA region. TVA touches seven southeastern states. Uh, when we expanded the organization in 1999, we started doing work in the, uh, more in the Carolinas and in Florida. And right now, the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, a lot of people don't, don't know this because most people are familiar with its Knoxville history. We actually do more work outside of Tennessee than we do in Tennessee. We are uh, primarily focused in five states, uh, Tennessee, which is really a proxy for the TVA region, North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And we have uh, about 37 staff uh, uh, throughout the southeast. We have offices in, here in Knoxville, out, now out on Middlebrook. We were on, uh, right down here on Gay Street, but we recently purchased a building out on Middlebrook right before you get to the 640 area, and we're in the process of renovating that and making that a sort of a model energy efficiency building. Um, we've got offices in Asheville and Atlanta, and then we have satellite offices throughout uh, the states that we work in. I, I've known about this book for a while, but to be quite honest with you, I hadn't picked it up and read it until, until Emily uh, sort of gave me the charge to do it. And um, it, uh, it actually is a, is a very fascinating book. What is particularly interesting about it for me is that um, a, a number of the people in this book I know personally because our organization has been very active on uh, working on uh, climate change-related issues for a number of years. Matter of fact, the five areas that our organization works in, climate strategies is, is one. We work on energy efficiency. We work on clean energy, which is, in essence, renewable energy. We work on clean fuels, which looks at biofuels and also things like electric vehicles. And then we have an area that we call high-risk energy choices that focuses in 
on things that we are not that enthusiastic about, and that includes coal-fired power plants, nuclear power plants, and offshore drilling. We've been calling them high-risk energy choices for quite some time, but if you think about what's happened in the last 36 months, uh, I hope everybody recognized that these are high-risk energy choices. The Kingston disaster just down the road on the coal-fired power plants and the, the mining accidents that we've all known about, uh, the BP disaster in the Gulf of Mexico on the deep-water offshore drilling, and now we're seeing this event continue to unfold in Japan on nuclear power. And so we are a strong group that feels very strongly that things like energy efficiency and renewable energy are the best way to reduce the environmental footprint of how we produce and consume energy in this country. And that's going to be really the theme that I'm going to keep returning to back, back here because one of the largest environmental footprints that we have in how we produce and consume energy is the production of greenhouse gases or global warming pollution or however you want to describe it. Um, and that's really the focus of the book, is where this particular author uh, injected himself in with some real leaders in the movement to move a uh, federal piece of climate legislation, which is a Herculean task, because there are some of the most powerful institutions in the world are actually aligned against seeing anything happen other than business as usual in how we produce and consume energy. You know, think about it for a second. Institutions like ExxonMobil or some of the large coal companies like Peabody Coal, many, these, these companies in and of themselves are larger than a lot of countries in the world, these international, multinational corporations. And they are not at all interested in seeing any meaningful change to do anything to reduce the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere. And you, if you read this book, you begin to see how some of those games are played politically and why uh, our political system is really struggling to be able to respond to this challenge because money and political influence are uh, very clearly at work in the debate about how we move forward on federal climate change legislation. So a number of us have been sort of beating our head on that issue for a long time. And to, to the credit of the author, uh, you know, he does a pretty good job of trying to drill in there and really sort of tell the story of how some of this happens. And he focuses in on three players. And I've had personal experience with all three of them that I consider sort of the major actors in this, uh, this, this story. Um, first is, and a lot of us know, uh, former uh, Vice President Al Gore, who has played a very large role in educating uh, people about this issue, um, and his uh, organization, the Alliance for Climate Protection. I was asked actually to serve on the advisory board for the Alliance for Climate Protection when it was first being formed. I've actually been trained by uh, uh, former Vice President Al Gore. As a matter of fact, this is one of this is a NASA slide, but this is one of the slides that he trained about 5,000 of us to use his slideshow to go around the world, literally, and talk about this. And I'm going to actually use a couple of his slides to make a couple of points. Um, you know, I don't have a close personal relationship with Al Gore. As a matter of fact, I butted heads with him while he was a senator because part of our role as, as advocates is to uh, call people out sometimes when they're not doing what we'd like for them to do. And there were several instances when he was uh, wearing his political hat that uh, a number of us uh, butted heads with him. But by and large, we've uh, supported what he's done. Uh, although, 
and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to you know, share some critiques. I think Al Gore's involvement in this issue, while I think he's done an amazing job of raising awareness, I think the downside is that he has unfortunately continued to make this, for not necessarily all reasons of his own, but sometimes a very partisan issue. And I think that is one of the real problems that we're up against is that this issue of solving the climate crisis, responding to the challenges of global warming, has been way too partisan, and we'll talk a little bit about that. One of the other players is a fellow by the name of Fred Krupp, who is uh, head of the Envir uh, uh, Environmental Defense Fund. Yeah, and During this period, I served as the, um, the co-chair and then the chair for the U.S. Climate Action Network, and uh, we were invited in, the U.S. Climate Action Network was invited in, and regional groups like the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy were invited in to be part of the Green Group. And you hear them reference the Green Group as all the national uh, leaders of the environmental community get together, the CEOs of their, their organizations get together and strategize. And we work pretty closely. And so through that, I got to uh, know a little bit about Fred Krupp and some of the things he was doing. I was in some of the meetings with him. Um, again... Great guy, you know, Environmental Defense Fund really was the ones that arch the architects of the cap and trade, which was used in, the, in uh, reducing sulfur dioxide emissions, putting scrubbers on coal-fired power plants during the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990. And it, it was the architecture of the bill that was trying to pass, using a cap and a trading mechanism uh, to pass a federal piece of legislation. And environmental defense was really a lot of the brains behind that early on. They had legal teams and, and, and economists to really work that through. They got the first uh, George Bush to adopt that in 1990, and then they tried to run it through here recently through the recent uh, federal legislation, and that's articulated in the book. And then the other uh, big player in this is, uh, is the CEO of Duke Energy, a fellow by the name of Jim Rogers. Uh, I first met Jim Rogers when he was trying to build two coal-fired power plants outside of Charlotte called Cliffside. And the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy and some other groups actually intervened in North Carolina uh, Public Service Commission to oppose the construction of those coal-fired power plants. And we put Jim Rogers on the stand for about eight hours one day and drilled him about why uh, he wanted to build a coal-fired power plant at the same time he was talking about wanting to reduce global warming pollution. And we can get into the responses, but we had uh, uh, he and I had a, a fairly heated exchange uh, because he's used to people just sort of walking up to him and kissing his ring. You know, he's a big CEO and, you know, thinks big of himself. And, uh, you know, we just weren't there to do that. We ended up defeating one of the plants, but he was able to get the second one through the Public Service Commission, and that plant is now under construction. And uh, a lot of this book talks about some of, the, some of the activities that have gone on around opposing the cliffside plant over in North Carolina, which is um, one of the few coal-fired power plants that is actively under construction. To the environmental community's credit, we, the larger we, including the Sierra Club, NRDC, uh, a number of other groups have been working on this, have been able to stop uh, about 150 coal plant proposals in the last three years, which you'll see is really, really good news because it has tremendous implications on climate change. Uh, Rogers was one of the last ones to build a coal plant, uh, get one through in this country, and we, we fought him pretty hard on that. We've also interacted with him on a number of other things in, the, in North Carolina. I want to put this in context for you. I, you know, the, the sad thing about this is, and this book sort of rides that wave, is that um, during the uh, uh, first decade of this century, um, 
2000 through 2010, we saw a building crescendo towards doing something on climate change. And again, there are a lot of people that deserve credit for that. Um, obviously, Al Gore with his release of Inconvenient Truth, the movie. Um, but there were lots of us across the country and across the world, quite literally, who were wanting to see dramatic and uh, uh, consequential actions taken to reduce greenhouse gases. What I've witnessed in the last 24 months is very disturbing because what has actually happened is that I think that a lot of that effort has peaked and is in decline. I think a lot of it is that there has been an attack on the science. Uh, there was the sort of quote-unquote climate gate that, uh, where somebody hacked into the uh, computer system over in England with some of the scientists and put out some emails that were taken out of context, and that has been used by the radical right to really undercut the fundamental premise of, I think, science generally, because most of the people that are talking about it don't understand science and they don't understand how science is done. But more importantly, they have undercut the, uh, the credibility of a lot of the scientific arguments for climate change, and that's, that's really unfortunate because I think it's been a setback. Um, there's also been a massive influx of money from uh, a number of players like the Koch brothers who own an uh, oil company in the central part of the United States, and they've been bankrolling a number of, uh, again, I'd call them sort of radical right-wing uh, groups, and then a lot of the, the Tea Party uh, folks who have who I think have maybe legitimate concerns about debt structure in this country, but because of this money coming from the oil and gas interest, have adopted uh, an anti-climate change perspective and have become very hostile to climate change. And that now has got the political spectrum has shifted, at least temporarily, to the right. And they, they're holding, I think, a lot of thoughtful people hostage on the climate change issue. And unfortunately, that has really set us back. So um, we've seen this build up and then, I, I think, drop off. And it's, it's, it's of great concern to me where we go now going forward. But I I'm not going to sit here and get into a, a detailed discussion of climate change. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you just two or three slides. And anybody who's a denier or a skeptic that you talk to or whatever, if you can capture these two or three slides in your imagination, I think, you know, to me, they sort of sum it up uh, most dramatically. This is a, a graph of time going back in the past 800,000 years. On this axis is the concentration of CO2, which is carbon dioxide, which is the gas that is primarily emitted from burning fossil fuels. And you can see over this historic period that the concentrations have varied. So anybody that says that CO2 is stable in the atmosphere is, is, is factually not accurate. I mean, it does vary over time. And these were developed by going into the Arctic or Antarctic and drilling or into glaciers and drilling ice core samples deep down. Because you can almost like going in a time machine back in time. If you drill down into an ice core sample, you can capture little bubbles of the atmosphere. And scientists can determine what the concentration of CO2 was going back in time. Now, let me also just wrap your mind around the time frame we're talking about. This is... Uh, today's date. This is going back 800,000 years, okay? The concentrations of CO2 have been relatively stable, although they've been on the uptick, but they've been relatively stable over this time period. Now, the next, the next part of this graph is the um, is temperatures. And temperatures roughly correlate with the concentration of CO2. And that's, you know, there's, there's no 
I mean, it's like gravity. I, 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 the relationship between CO2 and temperatures is, is pretty, pretty agreed upon in science, okay? Now, the implications of that are still hotly debated, but, you know, trust me in saying that concentrations of CO2 and temperatures tend to correlate pretty well, and you can see in this graph. The bandwidth of this concentration of CO2 is roughly between 180 and 280 parts per million. Okay, if you sort of, maybe 290, but the, the numbers are not necessarily something you, you have to lock your mind on, but just think that there is a consistent bandwidth throughout all of sort of recorded human history about the amount of concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's, that's the historic record. This is today's concentration of CO2. Now, again, these are, these are Al Gore slides, but uh, they're, they're factual. There's no disputing this. This is not in, in any, any way in dispute. The concentration of CO2 as of January 2011 was right at 392 parts per million. Okay, now think about that. What I've just told you is that all of recorded human history and much further back, it has never really strayed out of the bandwidth of 180 parts per million to 280 or 90 parts per million. The concentration today is at 392. Now, this is business as usual of where we're going, folks. I mean, and this is not an exaggeration. This is, there's no dispute of this. This is the trajectory that we're on over the next 40 years. That is where we're going to be if we don't change our ways of burning fossil fuels, burning things like coal and gasoline, and we don't figure out ways to clean up the release of CO2. And we are on a relentless march in that direction. And so, you, you know, the right wing demonizing this issue uh, is doing no favors to humanity because... I won't sit here and tell you what's going to happen necessarily because, again, that's debated. But we are waging a grand experiment on the only planet that we can possibly live on in the climate. And we do not understand the implications. We do not understand the implications of what we're doing, but we are doing it in a relentless fashion. This is January 2011. This is the the very tip of that, this is what's called the Keating curve. So what happens is in the, um, in the winter months, the CO2 concentrations in the northern hemisphere increase because the plants lose their leaves, the plants are no longer pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, and so the curve goes up. And in the summer when the plants come down, come out and everything blooms, it pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere. But then in the winter it curves back up. And so this January, we hit 391 uh, parts per million. This is a NOAA, NOAA uh, slide that I, that's on the internet. And uh, it'll come down a little bit, but you can see the relentless upward tick of where we're going. All right? So this book is about a battle to pass a piece of federal policy legislation to do something about this. And I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but let me just tell you the facts. We got our butt kicked. 
We lost big time at the federal level. After Obama got elected, we were able to pass through the House of Representatives a bill called the uh, Waxman-Markey bill. Wasn't perfect. A lot of us started to have to hold our nose because of all the deal-making that was going on in that bill. But it did pass. But we, were, we absolutely got our butts kicked because that was the summer that the sort of right-wing unleashed a barrage, not only on health care, but also on this, and had those angry summer uh, meetings with their representatives, and they started just raising all kinds of cane with the senators, and the Senate uh, didn't even really seriously take this effort up, and it never passed, and unfortunately, the Obama administration, and this book outlines this, never really stepped in at the level they needed to step in to pass this piece of legislation. They basically made a calculated decision that they were going to go with health care and they were going to let this go. And because they went on a scorched earth policy to pass the health care bill, by the time this came up, there was no political willingness to undertake this. And so this book is about the details, the deal-making, the behind-the-scenes stuff was going on, and it's pretty insightful. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm sure some of it is a little bit, you know, sort of hyperbole to sort of juice it up a little bit. But honestly, we live, I live that, my staff live that at a very uh, close level, and I would say that most of the stuff in here, you know, is dead on what was going on. We've got this major problem, and I don't know, I honestly can't sit here and tell you whether our political system can overcome the influence of money and power uh, and largest institutions that the world has ever seen. Because it is very clear to me, and it's outlined in great detail here, how they undermined doing something. It's a lot easier to stop something than to make something happen. It's a lot easier to... Um, to oppose something and undermine it and, and just use cheap bumper sticker slogans to stop things. Now, um, I, w I was in Copenhagen when we had the big discussion there, and they talk a little bit about that. And unfortunately, it's not only in the United States that we've run into problems, because after Copenhagen, uh, a lot of the momentum at the international level now has trailed off. And we're seeing uh, a real stepping back even at the international level. So even if the United States got this right, uh, if we don't have the world community on board, China, India, the Europeans, Brazil, some of these developing nations, um, we could do the best things in the world, but we could still literally see that number continue to climb at, at an extraordinary rate. So I promised that I wasn't going to be a Debbie Downer, so let me just take a couple of minutes to talk about um, a few good news things that are happening. Um, and I don't want this to be misquoted, so I'm going I'm to say it three times. What I'm about to say is not that I am supporting the fact that the recession has led to some positive things. Uh, but, so I'm not advocating for recession as a way to solve climate change. And I am not saying that unemployment and a recession are good. But the economic slowdown, taking some of the heat out of the economy has actually done some phenomenal things for getting CO2 out of the atmosphere. And I'm going to show you some slides here in just a second of what's happened at TVA. Um, so 
whether we like it or not, we've actually bought ourselves a little bit of time because you've seen dramatic reductions in CO2 emissions for a couple of years based on the world economic slowdown. The other thing that happened was the economic crisis, to Obama's credit, they were able to move through $80 billion worth of stimulus directed at clean energy and clean technology. There's actually people in this room that are, that are actually taking advantage of that because there's a lot of solar installations that are going in. There's a lot of energy efficiency that's being uh, invested in. There's a lot of really good things that have come out of the administration's stimulus package that are actually making a difference on climate change. That's all good news. The bad news is that money's drying up. Within the next year, large, most of it will have been spent, and it's unclear because we don't have the policy mechanisms. That was what was so important about this bill was it sent a market signal to create the change that allowed the private sector to start to kick in so that you didn't have to rely on government money. That is what is so ironic about the opposition to this because it is actually allowing the market to get the right market signals that could actually transform our economy away from the damaging fuels to a more proactive, positive, visionary way of producing consuming energy. But yet it is totally stalled out. So we do a lot of work on TVA, and I promised that I would show you, and I promised Emily that I would talk a little bit about, well, what's, what's going on? There's a war going on, but there's actually battles going on every city across the world about what we can do and what we can do in every region. This is TVA's emissions of carbon dioxide going back uh, to about 1996. TVA had pretty consistently emitted about 100 and almost 110 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere from their 11 coal-fired power plants, seven in the state of Tennessee, two in the state of Kentucky, and two in northern Alabama. When the recession hit, there was a precipitous drop. Now, this wasn't just the recession. <laughs> Unfortunately, this was also the Kingston spill. Because after they lost Kingston, they dialed back on running the Kingston boilers for a period of time. And so they, were, they had pulled back on their emissions. So the number here uh, is roughly 104 million tons. And in 2009, it dropped to, I think that's 73 million tons. Now, what we were advocating in the climate bill was a 20% reduction 25% uh, reduction below 1990 levels. That was being debated. There were different targets that were out there. The president talked about 17%. You know, there are all kinds of different levels. But we did it. <laughs> I mean, it happened. Unfortunately, this is coming back up, okay, uh, because the recession is not going to hold. But a number of us have been involved in what's called an integrated resource planning process with TVA. The Southern Alliance for Clean Energy has been advocating this for years. We just completed an 18-month process with TVA to look at how we could get them to do a better job of planning. Our goals going in was to increase energy efficiency, increase renewable investment, and decrease the reliance on fossil fuels. This graph, and again, you don't need to get locked on the numbers, but just pay attention to the trends. In that process, through the work that we and a number of other people did, we were able to convince TVA, and TVA had some things coming on economically that they needed to deal with, that they should start retiring their coal-fired power plants. TVA announced in August of last year 
that they were going to retire 1,000 megawatts. TVA's whole system of coal-fired power plants is about 14,000 megawatts, okay? A megawatt is a unit of capacity that, uh, like the Kingston coal-fired power plant down the road here, the big one you see along the interstate, is about 1,400 megawatts. It's got nine boilers at that facility. So it gives you a sense. They're, they decided that they would announce uh, the retirement. In this integrated resource plan that the board is going to approve on April 14th, in other words, in about three weeks, the staff recommends to the board to retire no less than 4,000 megawatts of coal. All right? Now, they gave them a range between 2,400 megawatts and 4,700 megawatts. We think they ought to go higher than the 4,000. But what you see here is you see this historic level of CO2 emissions, which was 100 million tons, and you see the downward trajectory that happens if they will retire those coal-fired power plants. In this book, they talk about a particular scientist by the name of Jim Hansen. Jim Hansen works for NOAA. He's, I mean, NASA. He is a, one of the world leaders. Those of you who have really good memory may remember back in 1988, he was the one that went to Congress for the first time and really testified that global warming was happening. That was the summer when, you know, catfish were drying up in the Mississippi because there wasn't any rain, remember? So, um, you know, this guy basically says the number one thing we can do to solve the climate crisis is retire coal-fired power plants. All right, the good news is that TVA is finally starting to look at it. What we need is a loud, uncontroversial, undeniable call from the people that live in the Tennessee Valley. Yes, you can. Yes, we need you to retire these coal plants. Because if you do, you can see that those levels that I mentioned to you earlier of getting it down into like the 70, 70 million uh, tons of CO2 with the coal plant retirements, you know, they can get down into that range permanently, which would be about a 25% reduction. Is that enough? No. But is it an important down payment while we try to figure out how to deal with the politics and how to get the technologies up? You betcha. It is a lot better than a do-nothing strategy that right now we're faced against if we don't get our act together to do something because that relentless march up. TVA is one of the largest utilities in the country. They have one of the largest and the oldest coal-fired power plant fleets in, in the United States. They're one of the largest emitters of CO2 in the world. Okay, So when you flip your light switch on, you are connected to the climate crisis whether you want to be or not. Every time you run your television, your hair dryer, whatever it is, you are connected to a TVA coal-fired power plant that is shoveling coal in, burning it, and putting CO2 in the atmosphere that is causing the devastation that is being unleashed on the planet as we speak. So this is an opportunity for you to weigh in, writing letters to the editor, coming to the TVA board meeting. It's going to be in Chattanooga on the 14th. And just you'll get two minutes to talk to the board. Tell them how important it is to you that they do something to solve the climate crisis and retire these coal-fired power plants. There's a lot that you can do. Other things that you can do, energy efficiency. TVA, for the first time, is really starting to get serious about energy efficiency. We need them to do more. KUB is going to be a very important player. LCUB, the Lenore City. If the distributors don't cooperate with TVA, we won't see the targets. But in this long-range plan... We actually see TVA putting some real numbers on the table for the first time about energy efficiency investments. That's good news. They did, get it right. they did not get it right on renewables. TVA really has some problems and a mental block on renewables. We need to keep the pressure on them. Solar in this state, we have seen $3 billion, and that's a billion with a B, investment in solar technology 
with the Hemlock Semiconductor Facility up in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, the Vocker facility that they're going to cut the river on in two weeks. Those are both producing the polycrystalline that is used in solar panels. Sharp Solar has a facility in Memphis. You have the flat glass company in Tennessee that's making flat glass. You've got Confluence just up the road here that's doing it. We have developed a cluster of clean energy technologies here in the state. But we need to create the market pull to get those solar facilities up and deployed. And we need TVA to send the right market signals. They're doing it on small-scale solar, but they've sort of dropped the ball on the larger-scale solar projects. And we need both. We need both people putting them on the roofs. I've had solar on my house for several years. It works. You know, you can basically make your home a zero-energy home. There's absolutely no reason why we weren't do, aren't doing more of this. We've got to provide the incentives. TVA's got to provide the pull, and all those kind of things can happen. The book is a good read. Uh, if you like getting into the details of politics and what's really going on, and it's some really interesting stories. The war, the battle goes on. Each and every one of us, whether we like it or not, are part of that and can be part of the solution because we're definitely all part of the problem because when you drive or whatever... You know, we've got these electric vehicles coming on. They could be a huge boom to getting fossil fuels uh, down. Unfortunately, I drove the Nissan Leafs when they were here in town. You can't get one ordered right now. They're, they're way out. I don't know what the situation in Japan is going to do to slow those orders down. I talked to the people at West Chevrolet today about a, a Chevy Volt. You know, they're basically saying, well, we're not one of the five states that was targeted. We may be able to get one in the next year or so. It's not happening fast enough, folks. We've got to demand that these things, solar panels, the wind, the electric vehicles, these things have got to be, we've got to provide the pull and the demand to make that happen. Otherwise, that number is relentlessly going up and the grand experiment continues on. So let me stop now and let, uh, let folks ask some questions and I'm happy to try to do the best I can and answer them. Okay, yes ma'am. It feels like it's too late to make significant changes in the I don't, climate war. You know, <laughs> I am a realistic optimist, you know, I guess is what I'd say, because I believe that uh, we can make a difference. Um, I believe we are at some level, but it's not happening fast enough. So uh, the alternative is to say, to hell with it, just let it go. And, and I, I can't do that. I've got kids and I've got grandkids, and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to give up. I mean, I think we've got to fight. Uh, we don't know where that tipping point is. We don't know the long-term implications. But the level of passivity, the lack of rigorous debate on this issue is totally out of proportion with the potential impacts of this. And unfortunately, it may take another catastrophic event to wake us up. But you all are all intelligent. You all are all able to think. You need to get the facts on this, and you need to act, because that's what it's going to take. Yes, sir. Uh, you didn't touch on nuclear much, but I wanted to ask to get your comments and uh, what you know about. We occasionally hear about efforts to not restart, but to bring the two Belafonte units back online. Not online. They've never been online, but online. And I uh, just wonder what you thought about that. Sure. Would that be part of the effort to replace something maybe that's lost if uh, coal plants are taken offline? Well, that, that's a very good question. It's a very interesting question. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you flat out, our organization is not that, enthousia that enthusiastic about nuclear power. And I'll, I could go into a lot of reasons. I won't necessarily bore you with them all. But the events unfolding in Japan are 
part of the reason. The economics are actually a big part of the reason, too, because you, you have opportunity cost. And when you drop a lot of the new nuclear plants, we've intervened in a number of the cases that are coming up in the southeast. The numbers are coming in at about $14 billion. So you can do a lot of stuff with $14 billion. Um, and if you spend $14 billion here, it means you probably don't have it to spend over here. So um, the, the situation with the Bellefonte nuclear reactor, there's two reactors in northern Alabama uh, uh, near Scottsboro who were partially started in the 1970s. They're Babcock-Wilcox designs. They've never been, this particular design has never been licensed in the United States before. And TVA has made a decision to start to invest money to rebuild those. They're about to complete Watts Bar 2, which would be the second of the Westinghouse design reactors that are down here uh, near Spring City. And uh, that unit should probably come online 2012, 2013. Uh, TVA has not formally made a decision to absolutely complete Bellefonte. In this integrated resource planning process, uh, it is part of the decision matrix in there. They thought that they needed it by 2018. It actually turns out in, the, in, the, in this that they can probably delay that. Remember, Bellefonte is a 1960s, early 70s design reactor. It has never operated. It's a clean site. So there is a lot of questions about whether you'd want to invest in that generation of nuclear technology or whether you try to do a newer AP1000 design. TVA's decided to go to the older design. That's a questionable decision. Now, you're perceptive in saying, well, we're retiring these coal plants. Don't we need something to replace them with? In actual fact, at the level they're talking about right now, the coal plant retirements are not necessarily what's driving the Bellefonte decision because energy efficiency and the loss of the Paducah gaseous diffusion plant, which is a major pull, are influencing, and, and the demand forecast is coming down going out in the future because of the economy. So at the level they're retiring coal plants right now, Bellefonte is not necessarily a slam dunk that you have to do it. But TVA, as we said, we'd like to see TVA retire at a higher level of coal plant retirements. Remember, they have 14,000 megawatts. This represents about 4,4700 megawatts. So there's a lot more opportunity. If they start climbing up above the 4,000 level, then things like Bellefonte or some other baseload technology. Now, natural gas is a lot cheaper right now, and so it's, it's really putting a lot of pressure on the utilities to look at that over nuclear power because nuclear power is so expensive to build. And there's greenhouse gas emissions with natural gas, but they're about 50% lower than coal-fired power plants. So going to gas is actually an advantage on a climate uh, uh, thing. We'll see. The hydrofracking is controversial, and it's unclear where that's going to go, but the, load, the, the cost forecasts for natural gas now are so low going out for the foreseeable futures, a lot of utilities are reevaluating what they're going to do. You had a question? Uh, I have a question about uh, solar panels and the, uh, the problems with production of solar panels. Isn't there uh, an environmental impact there? Well, it depends on what type of solar panel. There are solar panels that use sort of more exotic uh, metals uh, that, that do need to be uh, uh, carefully handled. But a lot of the polycrystalline solar panels that are pretty much permeating the market right now um, are much more environmentally benign. Uh, there was an argument that sometimes the people who want to downplay renewables say, well, a solar panel never produces enough energy to overcome what it took to build it, because it takes a lot of energy to melt the silicone and turn it into polysilicone and get, and, um, but 
DOE looked at that question and said that within two to three years, the energy invested in it is recovered. And so, you know, the, and solar panels are lasting 20 plus years or more. And they, they, they don't even know where the end life is because the ones they originally put in are still going on. So, um, solar power is still more expensive, but the, the cost point of the price, when, when TVA, uh, had a, started this green power switch program back in about 2000 and we were very closely involved with it uh, work, and we continue to work with them on it and when they first started doing it some of the solar panels they put in were costing 65, 70 cents maybe even 80 cents a kilowatt hour okay um, the price point now is that they're paying they're paying me and anybody else that wants to put solar panels on and be part of Generation Partner they're paying us uh, the, the current rate which is about 9 cents plus a 12 cent uh, premium which floats with the rate. So that means I'm getting about 21 cents a kilowatt hour. With that payback and, and some of the support from the government, that's about a 15-year payback for me, approximately, for my, my panels. Now, the price continues to come down. When TVA discontinued their solar program this summer, we brought a lot of the solar installers in, and, you know, not to divulge any confidence, but they were basically saying, you know, we could build these things at about 16 cents a kilowatt hour, the larger, the larger systems. And so what I'm telling you is the price is coming down, and it continues to come down. Out in California, they're getting them in even below that. And so what happens is as the price of electricity goes up and the price of solar comes down, there's a point at which it crosses, and that's called grid parity. And I think we're within the sight distance of seeing grid parity. In some places like Hawaii and some of these other real expensive markets, it's already there. But as you come into the southeast where we've been relying on dirty coal and other things like that, our prices are still relative. Nine cents is really cheap for electricity in the grand scheme of things. So when, and that's going to go up because regardless of what TVA does, whether it's clean up the old coal plants or build nuclear plants or, you know, clean up the, the, the spill over here, rates are going to go up. And there's a point at which those rates cross with grid parity. And I think we're within 10 years of seeing that happen in the valley. And I think if that happens, then you're going to see an explosion of this. So TVA should be very aggressive in pushing it. Unfortunately, in this planning process, they took a current snapshot cost, what they said was 29 cents, and they basically tried to forecast that forward. And all of us were like saying, no, that's not right, because the price continues to come down. You can't take a, a momentary snapshot and project it 20 years in the future when the cost curve of solar is coming down like that. And think about it. Solar is, is really just like semiconductors. I mean, that's what polysilicon is, and it's just like uh, the, the, the inside chips for computers. Um, so, you know, it's just that kind of stuff that's going to happen if we can get the economies of scale of production and deploy it. A lot of people hear this phrase, low-hanging fruit. Well, we'll go do this. We'll go do that. But think about it. You had an incandescent bulb, which was really a better heater than it was a light source because you'd burn your fingers when you tried to change it, right? So that's energy being wasted instead of producing light. Then we had complex fluorescence. Now we're moving to LEDs, and there's other technology on the way. If you look at refrigerators, I remember the refrigerator I used to have, you know, when the compressor came on, the lights would dim. Now you've got refrigerators that are so efficient that, you know, they hardly use any power at all. The greenest electron is the one you never use. And so, you know... Um, our organization spends a lot of time on energy efficiency policy, and we do a lot of interventions at the state government level to require that the utilities make investments in energy efficiency. And, and we're having some success. Both Duke Power in North Carolina and TVA have set goals of reduction. We think that there should be a minimum, an absolute minimum, of a 1% reduction in demand each year. Okay. What that does is, at the current projections, that sort of holds energy use flat. We think that the good utilities in this country now are approaching 2% demand reduction 
on an annual basis. And that actually puts you into a negative slope where you're actually taking the need for some energy down. The good thing about energy efficiency is it's a well that never stops getting replenished. But let me tell you something. There's a bill that requires that incandescent bulbs be phased out. You know what? There's some people who are trying to undermine that legislation right now, saying no, and Marsha Blackburn from over here in East Tennessee is leading the charge. She's a congresswoman from right outside of Nashville. No, people have a right to have incandescent light bulbs. We're going to stop that, that, you know, and that's the kind of stuff we're up against. It's hard to force people to do stuff, but hopefully people get educated. But energy efficiency is absolutely where we need to do it. Can we do it all with energy efficiency? No. But we can, we can dramatically reduce demand growth, and we can begin to cut into some of that, and then it creates space for other things to happen. Plus, it saves consumers money, which is really important. More money in your pocket because you're not giving it to utility companies. Other questions? Yes. Assuming we can ever get a good majority of the politicians out of their denial mode and so they recognize there's really a problem to be solved, it seems like the... The biggest legitimate argument against things like cap and trade and any uh, legislation at the federal level is that it would put the United States industries at a competitive disadvantage with uh, trading countries around the world if they are not simultaneously doing something similar. Right. How do we get back to international discussion with the Chinese in particular and the Russians and the Indians? and everybody else in the world who's burning forests, burning huge amounts of coal like China is, um, to get some kind of international agreement so that the economic playing field could be more leveled if there's national legislation to deal with climate change. Well, let me me give you a a frame that people in the United States don't hear that often, but if you go to the international climate discussions and you talk to countries in, in the developing world, what they'll tell you. If you think of the globe as a pie and you think of there's only so much space in that pie that can be occupied by CO2, the industrial countries, the United States, the Europeans, have consumed the vast majority of that pie so far. And about the time that India and China are just beginning to ascend, we're going to tell them, no, 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 you can't develop. Uh, You know, you can't do that. And so the politicians in the United States like to, like to grandstand on the China-India question. But the reality is, from the China and India perspective, they're like, no, wait a sec. You guys have gotten a great standard of living. You've fully developed your countries. And about the time we're about to develop, you're going to tell us no. So, but your question is a legitimate one. In the bill and in a lot of discussions that have gone on, there have been talks about if the United States does not... Um, I mean, if other countries do not engage and the United States was to go forward, could you put, uh, like, climate tariffs on products coming in from other countries that, you know, don't basically have the same policy? Unfortunately, we've never got to test that because the United States has been the outlier. It was the only country in the world that ultimately did not sign the Kyoto Protocol. And then uh, the collapse of Kyoto, unfortunately now, there's, there's not nearly as much going on internationally as there was to the level that it needs to be happening. So I do agree that we've all got to work together. But the developed nations, and I would agree with this in a fairness space, need to take the lead. Now, from a purely scientific and getting tons out of the air, you betcha. We all got to do it at the same time. But um, because a ton in CO, uh, CO2 emitted in China is just as detrimental as a ton of CO2 emitted in the United States. 
Here's the good thing about carbon dioxide. You reduce a pound or a ton of carbon dioxide anywhere in the world, it has a positive effect on the environment. Things like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides tend to have more localized effects, so you've got to do it closer to home. But reducing CO2 anywhere in the world is a good thing. So if we can get the wind potential developed in the, in the central part of the United States, or even in, 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 there's lots of wind potential in this part of the United States, but the wind is, is cheaper there, it has a higher capacity factor, it's, and, and uh, we need to, but you need to bring it across. So there's a lot of discussion about what are called high voltage DC direct current lines to bring wind to the, uh, to, to the eastern part of the United States. The good news about wind, though, is wind is already competitive with natural gas and coal and solar, I mean, and uh, uh, nuclear power. Because it's coming in, in a lot of places, it's coming in at five cents or less a kilowatt hour, and that's really good. Um, in the valley, it's a little bit higher than that, but if TVA would do more to develop it, that would be great. Unfortunately, we have some of our politicians. Lamar Alexander hates wind. He, he actually, you know, fights it. His concern about it. I agree with nobody wants to put wind turbines in the Smokies. Nobody wants to put it in some of our view sheds. But to completely block it off as a resource, because there are places that would not cause visual blight and could be done uh, in our region without damaging birds and bats and other things like that, to just take it completely off the table I think is ridiculous. And that's his approach right now. Any other questions? Yeah. If you haven't signed up for Green Power Switch, which Steve mentioned earlier, not only writing to TVA, but spreading that program around, you're voting with your dollar. It forces them to go into renewables. And every argument that I've gotten into TVA, they bring that metric up and they say, well, you know, we're a public utility and the public doesn't really want it because they're not paying for it. So it's a voluntary program to get people to get into renewables. So I think that's a great way of getting their attention. And it's going to take a lot more than this room. Yeah. So spreading yeah. that word is important. And let, let me say this. If you guys are interested in keeping up with this fight, our website, cleanenergy.org, very easy to remember, cleanenergy.org. We have a very active blog on there where you will see a lot of these discussions going on. If you go there now, you'll actually see a video that we put up about retiring coal-fired power plants. We did a video. It's about 10 minutes. It's on our homepage. I strongly encourage you to send that link around to people so other people can see that. We need to elevate this discussion. Because, as I said, we've sort of reached a crescendo, and unfortunately we're in decline about really having the full-throated debate that we need to have on this issue, and we need your help to really elevate that. And remember, what's happening in D.C. is important, but each and every one of us can do things in our personal lives to really reduce the amount of CO2. Try to understand how much carbon you put in the environment. Try to understand your choices about how you drive, how you commute, the vehicles you choose how much energy you use on a monthly basis. I mean, everybody can pretty much tell me what their utility bill was, but if I ask you how many kilowatt hours you used last month, a lot of you wouldn't even know. And you need to become smart consumers because roughly every kilowatt hour equals uh, almost a pound of, of coal that is burned in a TVA coal-fired power plant. So we need to be conscious of the amount of carbon that we're putting in the atmosphere from our choices. So please visit our website at, at cleanenergy.org. Emily, thank you, and the library, thank you so much for, for giving me an opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.